came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Bless you. Thanks. That's a good. That's a good start for an episode about plague. <laughs> you just said. You just said bless you to me. Where, where does that come from? Bless you is from plague. So um, you know, the one of the symptoms of the plague was the sneezing. Yeah. During the um, the Black Plague, and so when somebody sneezed, you know, people were saying kind of bless you to them because they, they were likely to have plague and plague, and therefore they would die. So you know, bless is kind of. You'll be dead soon and hopefully you'll go to heaven, you know? Well, it's an appropriate way to start this episode, I think, right? We're going to be talking about um, the current pandemic and um, about the human obsession with death and destruction and the end of the world and lots of interesting things. In the past few seasons, when we talked about disasters, the context has usually been around hazards and occasionally conflict. But we've never really touched technology before. But today is the day. And joining us is Zachary Loeb. And what a perfect guest for this discussion. Zachary is a PhD candidate in the History and Sociology of Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He works at the intersection of the history of technology and the history of disasters and explores the belief that humanity's romance with technoscience will lead to the end of the world. This is going to be super interesting. So welcome, Zachary. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, I, this is something so different for the podcast. I'm very excited about this. Um, Zachary, your PhD dissertation is focusing on the year 2000 computing crisis, better mm-hmm. known as Y2K. And this is, um, you know, I, I kind of remember that time and being with my family and Nobody really believed anything was going to happen. But a lot of people, when the year was changing from um, 1999 to 2000, many feared that computers wouldn't be able to interpret the zero-zero change and that we'd have all these technology breakdowns and chaos, which, of course, we know didn't happen. Um, so what are your, your thoughts on this? What kind of, from, from that time, inspired you to do this research? So I think that Y2K is a really fascinating thing to look at for a variety of different reasons. Primary among them is that it's this moment where there was so much very public anxiety around Mm. a potential technological disaster. And this wasn't something where the concern and the fear about it was just consigned to a handful of computer programmers talking in technical journals or a handful of kind of, you know, strange people out on the societal fringes. Concerns about Y2K and kind of very serious borderline apocalyptic concerns about mm. Y2K, you could detect these in 
major media outlets, whether we're talking about Time Magazine or Newsweek, Y2K was part of the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode in 1999. (laughs) There were over 100 congressional hearings in the United States about Y2K. President Clinton was talking about Y2K. This was something where there was very serious public concern. And the thing that really strikes me as interesting about this, and one of the reasons that I really wanted to look into it, is that the object of concern at the focus of Y2K was computers. Mm-hmm. And not just the computers as the machines, but this sense that in becoming so reliant on our computers, we had exposed ourselves to a tremendous amount of risk. Mm -hmm. Society had become so interwoven with these computerized systems that if those systems stopped working, it would lead to a catastrophe. So if we think about a lot of the kind of popular paranoia around computerized systems when we think about like HAL 9000 or Terminator or all of these, oh no, you know, the computers are going to rise up and take over. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that's in the background of Y2K is that the computers had already taken over. We had already become so reliant on computers that if something went wrong, it was going to cause a catastrophe. And then in terms of this question about Y2K in terms of the way that we often remember Y2K as, and then nothing happened. I think that this is one of those areas where it's really important to think about how the anxiety of apocalypse can help distract from kind of mundane, smaller things going wrong. Mm -hmm. Because throughout the 1990s, there were lots of computer failures and computer breakdowns that were related to Y2K. And in that switchover period from 1999 to 2000, there were lots and lots of Y2K-related breakdowns. But people had become so primed to think that the airplanes were going to fall out of the sky and the nuclear power plants were going to melt down and it was going to be the end of civilization as we knew it, That then when there were just kind of a handful of flight delays or some banks had problems with their ATMs or, you know, smaller things like that, those kind of get pushed aside because they didn't meet the apocalyptic level of worry that some people were looking for. And I mean, here we also get into kind of the way in which the popular media winds up talking about risks and threats. Because if you look at the experts who were really doing the work on Y2K, then by the time you get to 1998, 1999, they're no longer thinking that this is going to be the end of the world because Mm -hmm. throughout the 1990s, so much work was being done. So by 98 and 99, the experts are saying, look, there are going to be some bumps, but it's not going to be too, too bad. But by the time that, you know, the mass media had really kind of caught on to this story. The narrative about the end of the world is better for selling magazines than a narrative about some bumps in the road.
episode. Right. So people were, again, like so primed to expect doom and gloom that they weren't, you know, ready or they were kind of underwhelmed when what happened fell short of the end of the world. So I, I wanted to follow up and, and ask about um, the preparations and, and things that were going on in mm -hmm. the run-up to Y2K. Um, like, do you think a lot of those preparations were actually making systems better and providing fixes to, to ensure that things didn't go wrong? Like, how, how much value was all that work that was being done in the, in the years running up? I think tremendous value. And I think that the computer professionals who were working tirelessly on correcting the code issues really did kind of save the day here. Mm -hmm. I think that to a large extent, Y2K is kind of a story about the importance of technical maintenance mm -hmm. and repairing technological systems and there's kind of a, I, I feel hesitant to use the word boring, but there's kind of a fairly basic story about Y2K, wherein it is a story of legions of unsung computer professionals just kind of hunkering down and doing a lot of fairly unexciting, fairly unglamorous, but like basic repair work mm -hmm. to these systems and beyond just fixing the problem and making it possible to avert the catastrophe that y2k could have been one of the things that this was also uh, related to was modernization of computer systems that y2k kind of forced a lot of big companies it forced a lot of government entities to do some of the cataloging, to do some of the repair work, to do some of the organizing of their computer systems that was necessary and that they had kind of been putting off for a long time. I think that to a large extent, Y2K is an important moment in the development of the IT sector and in the professionalization of the IT sector. Because Y2K is a moment where all of these companies that, you know, maybe kind of look down a little bit on their IT sectors, on their IT departments, suddenly realize that all of their, you know, top level activities are reliant on their IT working properly. I think something so interesting for me, Zachary, is like the, the issue of trust in experts and trust in the media. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of a a, a really relevant um, like moment for for thinking about that because I think like my perception of it I was like eighteen but my perception was that uh, look like what do they know you know they told us this, this was all going to be so big and of course it was <laughs> nothing and the media were just trying to hype it up and lie to us and all the experts were so scared and then nothing happened so it was like. I don't know whether you find that in your research, whether it was a big um, 
like seminal moment in public trust in experts and the media? So in terms of just the broader questions of societal trust in experts, societal trust in the media, I, I think that some of this has to do with the way that stories get told. Mm. Um, because one of the things that I think is really an issue about Y2K and about disasters of various sorts is that when a disaster happens, when something really catastrophic occurs, there is this rush to figure out what went wrong. Why did this happen? And there are panels that, you know, look into this and their investigations. Because when something went wrong, we want to figure out what went wrong. The public demands an explanation of what went wrong. But when things went right, oftentimes people are more likely to be like, oh, it was never really going to be a problem, right. as opposed to recognizing all of the work that took place over years and years and years mm -hmm. to make sure that nothing would go wrong. Right. And for me, that's part of the story of Y2K that I find really interesting and really important to talk about that Y2K, the reason that we can look back and laugh at Y2K is because they took it seriously and fixed it. You know, the, the IT sector had known that Y2K was going to be a problem decades before anybody was using the term Y2K. And the IT sector started talking very seriously about the dangers related to this problem in the early 90s. And a lot of world governments kind of were catching up to it in, you know, the mid 90s. And, you know, paying attention to the expert warnings, listening to their recommendations and taking this seriously. And by the time the public really catches up to it, by the time that it's on the cover of Time magazine, the issue had largely been addressed. You know, the work was being done. And one of the things that I have come across over and over again in my research on Y2K is various IT professionals, various technical experts talking about how they just did a three-hour interview with a journalist about Y2K in which they very carefully and clearly laid out all of the details and the risks and what was being done and what was probably going to happen. And then the article eventually comes out and the expert who was talked to isn't in the article at all because the newspaper article just wanted to talk about the end of the world. Yeah. You know, doom and gloom, as, as I said before, makes for a better magazine cover than like technical, than like IT professional says that it's not a bad idea to have a hard copy of like document X.
I think it actually reflects um, quite well the same narrative that we have in disaster risk reduction in that, you know, that the political side of the decisions and that when, um, say, an earthquake happens, right, and then the politician announces that, oh, but now I'm going to invest into 100 new schools and 1,000 new hospitals, right, as a part of the reconstruction, that wins them votes. Um, whereas if they invest in making schools kind of stronger and the hospitals more um, more effective before a disaster, nobody cares, right? Because nobody would kind of would have seen that preparation um, yeah. because that, it's not sensational. Um, and, you know, the end of the world um, <laughs> hasn't been avoided. So um, anyway, but I feel that very often when we talk about um, kind of hazards and how hazard turned or actually turned into a disaster, um, we, we, of course, on this podcast, we talk about the role of society. Yet sometimes mm -hmm. um, it feels to me that like no matter how much we talk about the, the, the role of um, about the social construction of disasters, we seem to be kind of hitting the same wall in that there is this widespread belief i guess I'm, I'm not sure whether belief is the right word that innovation and technology will solve all disaster risks for us right so it, it's kind of okay therefore to maintain the same oppressive systems that have led to, to vulnerability and disasters and at the same time we also tend to avoid i feel in disasters this narrative of kind of, of doomsday right so apart from apocalyptic movies it's hardly ever that you you would hear about disasters being portrayed as kind of the end of the world, right? Because surely technology will come and build a better wall or whatever it is, you know, a better structure. And and you, you've already alluded to kind of in your first answer and in your earlier answer about the, the narrative of the end of the world and why it is useful, right? And why some people um, employ it. So I wonder whether you feel that perhaps disasters should maybe use that narrative somehow as well i mean what do you want those that you're talking to to learn or to imagine when you talk about doomsday oh wow this is this is a wonderful <laughs> and, and and difficult question i i mean to to return very briefly to kind of the the first part of your comment so this question about technological innovation and disaster and technological innovation and risk um, is, is really one of the main things that is at the core of my interests in research, not just involving this current research, but beyond it, is I'm really, really interested in the ways in which technology amplifies risk, the way that reliance on complex technological systems um, amplifies hazards mm -hmm. and this belief that technology is going to save us from all of these dangers, which in turn usually kind of means that we find ourselves at the risk of new technological dangers. Mm. In terms of some of, some of the doomsday stuff, um, I feel like it can be a little bit difficult in terms of specifically Y2K because I find that I'm often having to engage very directly with some of these apocalyptic matters because that was such a part of the narrative of Y2K. Mm -hmm. So I think that in terms of some other disaster history, 
you know, hurricanes, earthquakes that strike particular areas. When you see those talked about, they don't often or always kind of have the same apocalyptic tonality. Whereas with Y2K, there were so many figures, not just on kind of a strange religious fringe, who were really thinking about Y2K in terms of, you know, this could this could bring down civilization as we know it. Uh-huh. You know, I, I over the course of my research, I have been actively collecting all of the strange books that came out in the 90s about Y2K. So I have no shortage of books that are saying that Y2K is foretold in the book of revelation and that you know this is going to lead to the rapture and the end of days so you know there there's some very clear eschatological aspects to it but in terms of thinking then about the end of the world and doomsday and thinking about these and, and trying to figure out how to talk about and use these things in a way that's potentially useful uh, for my research and also possibly useful to communicate. One of the big differences that I find myself looking at a lot is the difference between the end of the world and and the end of the world as we know it. Mm. And I think that that can be a kind of fruitful distinction. Because there were definitely people who were worried that Y2K was going to be the end of the world full stop. You know, that Y2K was going to trigger an accidental nuclear war between the United States and Russia and the nuclear missiles were going to fly and it was going to be the end of the world full stop. But there's another way of looking at Y2K where what the crisis represented was the end of the world as it had been known and the creation of a new world. So I think that one of the ways in which Y2K fits into that is for a lot of people, Y2K was this shift into a world in which they had to come to terms with the fact that they were so reliant on their computers, on their computer systems, Um, And that the power had kind of shifted from people to these technological systems. And this kind of discomfort with this is something that you see in a lot of the congressional testimony, a lot of the reports that were coming out of people really being uncomfortable as they come to realize just how reliant they now are on all of these computerized systems. So in that way, you know, Y2K kind of was the end of the world as they had known it Mm -hmm. in that it was the end of this world where they weren't so reliant on all of these systems. And I think that that way of thinking about doomsday, that way about of thinking about kind of apocalypses and end of the world stuff can be quite fruitful. Um, And I think that we see that a little bit in terms of, you know, the huge body of work right now around like the Anthropocene, 
mm-hmm. where there are corners of that work that definitely talk about the end of the world. But then there are also a lot of parts of that work that kind of think in terms of the end of the world as we knew it, and then having to find our way and having to adjust in kind of a new, different world. This is so interesting. So you, you know, you just brought this kind of this weird memories uh, to me because I was like still at school in Russia in like 1999, right? When all of this were talked, we were talking about this. And I just remember how at school, um, it was almost like we live in Cold War um, in that, oh, you know, surely uh, America like got it wrong and overestimated everything. But also the narrative of the end of the world wasn't really around computers per se, but it was around the kind of the nuclear power. Uh, because, you know, if, if indeed technology goes wrong, then that's it. That that will be the collapse, not because of technology, but because the, there will be just the whole kind of nuclear um, mm-hmm. arsenal will just explode. And I don't know what happened, what would happen. Um, I haven't thought about this for what twenty years, and and now and today I have. So yeah, but thanks for <laughs> for bringing up those memories. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm uh, I, I'm always happy slash unhappy to make people think about the end of the world. <laughs> uh, I, I guess that's kind of my I, I guess that's kind of my my reputation. Uh, <laughs> but but I mean, in, in in terms of in terms of that, and in terms of your comment about the Cold War, I think that another thing about Y2K is it was kind of the, especially in terms of kind of the American perception of Y2K, it was the perfect apocalypse and the perfect apocalyptic fear for the 1990s. Because with the end of the Cold War, the paranoia about impending nuclear annihilation kind of starts to move to the background. But this is also pre-war on terror, so the threat of terrorism hasn't become that, you know, force for fear yet. So the 1990s in the U.S. are this perfect decade in which the concerns over the what is a danger to us shifts away from looking out to external threats to shifting inwards to looking at internal threats and our reliance on computers for for a handful of years there became kind of that perfect internal threat to be so worried about. So Zachary, I want to talk a little bit more about the way that our perception of risk is shaped by some of these narratives that we've been discussing. And um, don't we often as humans seek out information to confirm our the understanding we already have about risk, right? And so your piece, Broom Scrolling, Assume Scrolling, Bloom Scrolling, What Comes After Doom Scrolling was really great and a really cool title. Um, we're going to link in the notes. In this piece, you write... Though by no means a truly universal or national experience, doom scrolling brings together the emotions of mournful anxiety with the observation that for many people, this was a tragedy that was largely mediated by screens. 
Um, and this is in the context of COVID. And so I think this will be something that um, a lot of us and our, our listeners can relate to. And so you lay out the, the steps after doom scrolling um, in this article and you describe um, something I think that's really relevant to how people deal with disasters generally, from destruction to grief to hope. And we've recently talked a lot in the podcast about the narrative of returning to normal. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have this narrative of building back better. Um, and so do you see um, any counter narrative that challenges the return to normal? And how would you say our relationship to screens and the media affects how effective such alternative narratives can be? Uh, <laughs> big question. Mm. Um so, so the piece that, that you're referencing um, was kind of a, a sequel to a piece that I had written earlier in the pandemic, where at, at a moment when it seemed like lots of people were talking about doom scrolling. Mm-hmm. And so I originally wrote this piece called Theses on Doom Scrolling that was an attempt to kind of think through what doom scrolling was. Mm-hmm. And then the piece you just referenced um, was written in the in the spring of 2021 at a point at least in the united states where the vaccine rollout was going pretty well and it really seemed like the pandemic was kind of receding in the national narrative Mm -hmm. um that it was no longer kind of the front page news that it once was and something that I noticed just in my own media consumption and my own social media use is that where earlier in the pandemic, it seemed to me like everybody was talking about the pandemic. By kind of the spring of 2021, again, mainly talking about the US here, um, it seemed like doom scrolling had ended. Uh, it, it seemed like the the dominance of kind of the dark and unhappy narrative was shifting away. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that all of this scrolling kind of got at, and one of the things that was in the quote you mentioned, is that right there in the term doom scrolling is scrolling. You know, mm-hmm. it's this assumption that you are experiencing these occurrences primarily through a screen. So it isn't the case that you have been forced to flee from a catastrophic storm and you have had to leave all of your possessions. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you don't have the means to sit there scrolling. Um, you know, it is not the assumption that, like, the tragedy has befallen you personally and that you're kind of too wrapped up in coping with what has occurred to be able to kind of pass the time scrolling and it's it's this way in which the experience of the pandemic for a lot of people was simultaneously something that i think they could understand on an emotional and an intellectual level like was a catastrophe unfolding around the world but at the same time like it could be easy to lose sight of that if you were in a privileged enough position that like your experience of the pandemic was largely about like 
sitting at home with your laptop open, like working from home and, you know, mainly like being annoyed by, Mm -hmm. by everything that was going on. And I think that it allowed for a lot of people to have kind of a, a real sense of distance from what was going on. Um, If you were not personally sick, if you did not know somebody who got sick, um, then even in the face of absolutely, you know, tragic numbers of people who who died, um, it's easy for that to feel very abstract, um, you know, especially as things kind of kept getting worse. I mean, one of the things about this that I've thought a lot about is how when the United States passed 100,000 deaths, Mm. it was like this significant event. And the New York Times famously devoted like the entire front page to just listing the names of the dead and calling it an incalculable loss. And the U.S. has just crossed 600,000 deaths. Mm. And that crossing that threshold was kind of met with shrugs. Um, Or, you know, you can think back to the press conference that President Trump had held in March. And it was kind of a somber event where a lot of the media praised him for his shift in tone. And at that press conference, they said, you know, it could be as bad as like 250,000 dead. And again, by, by the time... Trump left office, you know, more than twice that number had died. Mm. So in terms of, sorry, I know I've answered your question in a very circuitous way. Um, but in terms of the <laughs> question about, about what, what is next um, and how do we build on these steps? Um, I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic to be completely honest. There's, a line from one of the major Y2K figures, a guy named Peter de Jager, who was one of the early kind of people to sound the alarm on Y2K and to really like try and like get people to start paying attention to it in 1993. And he, there's an interview with him from the first week of January, 2000. And one of the things that he says in that interview that, has always haunted me is the interviewer asks him what we've learned. And he says, I don't think we've learned anything from this. Mm. And my concern about the pandemic is that I don't think we've learned anything from this. I think that in the rush to get back to normal. um, And and again, I'm, I'm primarily talking about how things feel and look in the United States and kind of, the spring slash early summer of 2021. Um, But there's a desire to just rip off your mask, go back to the bar, get to the beach, see your friends, have a wonderful summer, even as, you know, the Delta variant is spreading, even as the vaccine numbers have plateaued. I think that there's a lot of hesitancy to stop and mourn to stop and really recognize what has happened um, to stop and recognize that 
these countries that thought they were impervious to something like this um, really catastrophically mismanaged it. I think that there is a lot of hesitancy to hold the politicians who really failed on this responsible. And I think that some of that hesitancy is very much a bipartisan issue where there are governors from both parties who really, really messed this up. And we're not talking about that. And also, um, speaking, you know, as, as somebody who really works on technology a lot, one of my concerns is also the way in which the pandemic in the spring fits very nicely into a narrative about technology that people like to believe, where technology solves the crisis. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to worry because technology will solve the next one too. So the vaccines are great. It's wonderful how, you know, they've been disseminated. I am fully vaccinated and I jumped at the opportunity to get vaccinated. But I worry that some of the narrative around the vaccines focuses on the success of the vaccines and therefore allows us to not have to talk about the failure of, you know, the first year before the vaccines were available. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it can easily feed into a narrative that's a, a heroic narrative around technological solutions that then covers up the story about social and political failure here. Absolutely. That's and no, and that's like a a story we we see so often in yeah. when we try to talk about what happened in a disaster, right? That's just a, that's a the kind of dominant narrative is that you know some experts save the day. Yep. And um yeah. And even when we when we analyze what the the problem is, um, we 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 often talk about the focus on the hazard um, rather than on root causes of a disaster, right? And mm. I think I think that applies here too. Yeah, I mean, without wanting to kind of belabor the point or or draw um, insensitive comparisons between the pandemic and Y two K, but in the course of my research on Y two K, I have read a really disturbing number of survival guides. Mm. Um, I, I have read so many Y2K survival guides. And mm. after reading some of those books, I felt like I needed to take a shower. Mm. But like one of the narratives that you see in a lot of the, in, in some of these books, not all of them, there are definitely some that are saying, go buy a shotgun and hide in the woods. But one of the things that a lot of the Y2K survival guides talk about is that like, Ultimately, if things go really wrong, what is going to get you through it is like your community. Like you are going to need to help your neighbors and your neighbors are going to need to help you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of this pretty basic feature of most disaster studies research that talks about like the importance of mutual aid and mm -hmm. social cohesion in the face of crises. And I think that one of the things that I have found particularly kind of worrisome throughout the pandemic 
is how in many ways it has really revealed, at, at least in the United States, how how social cohesion has really, really been fracturing mm-hmm. and how the idea that like you're wearing a mask to protect your immunocompromised neighbors, that like people aren't even willing to like do that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I find I find some of that very, very worrisome. definitely made uh, my pandemic doom scroll experience somewhat more positive uh, thanks to the plague <laughs> poem um you know <laughs> yeah i know that, that sounds quite quite wrong but but you certainly did right and um because i kind of very often felt as i was reading the plague poems like god damn like is he seeing what i'm doing right like how does he know what i'm feeling here um so so that that, that sense was shared clearly and how you capture those feelings and emotions and sort of 240 characters that Twitter allows is, is really amazing. I've got no idea how you do this. So why and how did you start writing the plague poems? The, well, well, first off, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that they supplied some, some comfort. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, so I started writing them in March of 2020 um, as as things were starting, as things were kind of kicking off, because I was feeling very concerned about what I was seeing. And I, I was just trying to figure out like different ways to think about it and talk about it and also kind of different ways to bear witness to what was going on and to what I was seeing. Um, and I, I just double checked. I, I posted the the first one of those poems on March 15th, 2020. Um, and I feel a bit odd kind of talking about it and trying to like go back and, and, and explain what I was doing because I really feel like when I started doing it, I thought this was going to be this kind of like thing I was going to do for three weeks. Hmm. And then the pandemic was going to, you know, not be as big a thing. And like, you know, this would be this silly thing that I did for three weeks and then it was done. And, you know, this this will be the 66th week of me writing and posting these poems. Wow. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I post 20 of them a week. And it's it it's it's been a lot. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that what I've been trying to do with them is just force myself to continue to pay attention. Mm. And hopefully push some other people to continuing to pay attention to this, continue to think about it. I also think that there is a societal bias towards optimism and towards not wanting to think about things going badly, not wanting to grieve. And 
So one of the things that I was also kind of thinking of was that these could serve as kind of a, a stopping point for people to either remind them to pause and remember this was still going on, or also just to provide some comfort to people to let them know that like they are not alone in going through this. Mm. They are not alone in feeling kind of depressed and challenged. And then, so in, in preparation for, for this conversation, I went back through some of the, the earlier weeks of these. And one of the things that I noticed that I was doing, which I mean, has been a conscious thing, but there's been kind of a steady cataloging of certain events, you know, like the moment that a certain milestone was passed, then the moment that a next, the next milestone was passed. And so one of the things, as, as I mentioned, is that hopefully it serves as kind of a way of commemorating and bearing witness mm. to things continuing, to things increasing. Um, you know, I, I know that it's kind of absurd to suggest that a written thing is a moment of silence, but I kind of think of all of these as being like small moments of silence um, throughout this. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for telling us, I guess, the story behind them. And would you read a couple of poems for us, perhaps? Sure. Um, I, I, should, I should acknowledge at the start that I, I, I mainly think of, of, of these as things that are written, not, not read. So my apologies to yourselves and any potential listeners if I'm reading these strangely or if I'm just uh, kind of going into what people sometimes mockingly refer to as poetry voice. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll, read, I'll read a couple. I have watched videos of those quarantined in Italy, taking to their balconies and singing with their neighbors. How lovely my neighbors and I would sound singing together if only we too had balconies. When the first whiff of smoke was detected, we remained in our seats. As the scent grew, some of us muttered, but were swiftly quieted. When the air visibly darkened, most believed it would soon dissipate. Now here we sit in a theater ablaze, wondering how this movie will end. In a room down the hall from my apartment lives an elderly man, white beard, stooped shoulders, a yarmulke on Saturdays. When we pass by the mailboxes or in the hall, we exchange pleasantries. Our shared hallway now echoes with his dry coughs. I do not know his name. The hands can be washed. The mask can be fashionable. The lost job can be overcome. The loneliness can be ignored. The death count can be stomached. What will shatter you is the broken plate. The only thing worse than the speed with which the number of deaths has grown is the speed with which many have come to simply accept that growing number. The poet Lucretius once wrote of the pleasure of watching a sinking ship 
from the safety of the shore. We would do well to remember that the ship we see sinking is the ship that we are aboard. It is said that if you place a frog into a pot of water on a stovetop and raise the heat slowly, 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 the frog will not recognize the danger boiling alive instead of jumping to safety. Look down, oh my friend, look down. Look down at your webbed feet. My great aunt has written me to tell me not to worry. She cannot go out, she is alone. But with a friend, she is now playing bridge over the internet. Therefore she insists, I need not worry about her. Not knowing, what else to tell her? I write, I am glad you are still playing bridge. On the nights when we would just stay in, she would say, you never take me out dancing. And we would laugh as we nestled deeper into the couch. Now, when night after night, we just stay in, I say to her, you never take me out dancing. And we are both too tired to laugh. Do not say that you are in limbo. Such an expression makes this tragedy sound like a delayed train. It cheapens the present moment by failing to name it accurately. My friend, you must credit the source of your unhappy stasis. You are not in limbo. You are in a plague. When you were young, wise old Aesop tried to warn you about this moment, wherein the plague is the steady tortoise and we are the overconfident hare. And, and here I'll, I'll, I'll give one more. Should they ask you, and they will, what you did with yourself during the plague times, they will not be satisfied if you answer that you survived. But no, it is enough. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Zachary Loeb, on Disasters Deconstructed podcast. Thank you for joining us. 